أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا ونبينا أبن القاسم المصطفى محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين واللعنة الدائم على أعدائهم أجمعين من الآن إلى قيام يوم الدين For the love of our beloved Prophet and his beloved progeny please recite a loud salawat Allahumma salli ala Muhammadin wa ali Muhammad wa ajjil farajahum for the hastening in the return of our beloved 12th Imam another loud salawat Allahumma salli ala Muhammadin wa ali Muhammad wa ajjil farajahum I hope everyone is doing well tonight inshallah we will continue with the discussion that we were having on suratul insan and we reached verses 8 through 10 in which we were discussing the story of the Ahlul Bayt giving away their food. And we discussed the story, of course, and the main point that we were emphasizing with regards to these three or four verses was how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on one hand mentions and he speaks of the Ahlul Bayt doing their good deeds, doing their good deeds out of the love that they have for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And at the same time, before this verse and after this verse, it speaks about the fear that the Ahlul Bayt have of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why we mention this question and we pose this question. Why is it that if the Ahlul Bayt do things out of their love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then why is it that the Quran also speaks about fear? Why is it that the Quran says, quoting the Ahlul Bayt, that they say, That is verse number 10. If they're supposed to be doing things out of their love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then what is this talk of fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And this is especially important because we talked about that famous hadith from Amirul Mu'mineen and it's been narrated from some of our other Imams as well that they categorized the worshipping that a human being does in three different categories. They said sometimes a person worships Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala out of fear. This is ibadatul abid. This is the worship of the slaves. Sometimes a person will worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala out of the hope of entering into heaven. He said this is the worship of the businessmen. And then there is a third category, those who worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because they love Him or they worship Him because they find Him worthy of being worshipped. And of course, we are taught that the Ahlul Bayt fall under this category. And yet the verses of the Qur'an that we are going through, they are saying the Ahlul Bayt beforehand, they are saying this, afterwards they are saying this as well, that we are fearful of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we said to explain how these verses go hand in hand, how they are compatible with one another, we said that the more someone comes closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the more his understanding of who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is increases. The more he appreciates and has a deeper understanding of the essence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And because of that, he feels a fear in his heart, not a fear that is a fear similar to the fear that we have, that we have committed sins, for example, and we are fearful of the consequences of it, but that this is a fear that he has of just knowing the greatness of this individual. And we gave an analogy to explain this in our last session, that if you were to go and meet a very, very famous person, naturally your heart starts to beat faster just because you feel a insignificance inside of you and you feel a significance in the, in, in the other person that you are meeting. And this difference, the idea that this person you're meeting is so much more superior to you, it puts a fear in your heart. 
things are different now, yes? Now you might panic a little bit. Now you might be a little bit worried. Now you might be a little concerned. Not because this person is going to punish you, but because you know how great this individual is. You are in awe of this individual. And so this is where we had a gateway into understanding what does it mean for the Ahlul Bayt to fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? What does it mean when they used to cry in their du'as? What does it mean that they had this fear in their hearts as it's mentioned in these verses of the Qur'an? And so we said that this fear is different from the understanding that we normally have of fear. For us, we have done certain things, we have committed certain sins, and we are fearful of the consequences of those sins. And because on the day of judgment, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one in charge, He is the judge, He is the witness, He is all in one. He's going to be the one who's running the show. This fear you attribute it to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. For the Ahlul Bayt, the fear is not a fear that they have done wrong things and now they are worried about the consequences. No, this is a fear that comes simply through understanding who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is. And therefore, the higher someone goes in this level of spirituality, the more they appreciate the greatness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the more they fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's not that this fear is a superficial concept that initially you're supposed to fear God and then as you grow, this fear leaves your heart. That's not how it works. The more you come closer to Him, the more you understand His greatness, the more insignificant you feel inside of you. The smaller you feel, the greater you feel His greatness. And this is how the relationship that the Ahlul Bayt had with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is why we find in the seerah of Imam al-Sajjad that whenever he wanted to go and stand in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for prayer, when he was preparing, he would go pale. This fear is different from the fear that we have. And a very good sign that shows us that this fear is different, the fear that we talk about when we say you're supposed to fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is different from the fear that you and I have when it comes to others. Is that when you have fear of something, you run away from it. When you have fear of something, you don't move towards it. But when it comes to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the fear that we are we're taught to have of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you find that when you have fear of Him, you run towards Him. This is mentioned in multiple du'as of ours, multiple ahadith of ours. That the one who has fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, instead of running away from Him, he runs towards Him. What does this mean? This means in reality, he was not fearful of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In reality, he was fearful of his sins. And because he has this fear of his sins, now he runs towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If this fear was like the fear that you have of normal individuals, you come across a person who's evil, you're fearful of him because you're worried that he might hurt you, for example. What do you do? Do you run towards him? No, you run the other way. But the fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes you run towards him. This means that in reality, it's not him that you are fearful of. In reality, it is your sins that you are fearful of. And this is why we have in multiple ahadith, from Ali ibn Abi Talib sallallahu wa sallamu alayhi he says this he says la yarjuwanna ahadun minkum illa rabbah says never none of you should have hope except from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala except towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wa la yakhafanna illa dhanbah and he wants to be fearful of something he needs to be fearful only of his sins yes because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the day of judgment 
He is the judge and he is the witness and he is everything. He's running the show on that day. You attribute this fear to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But in reality, it is fear of the sins that should be in my heart and not fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because like I said, if it was a fear that was as essentially from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I would not be running towards Him. If you truly were fearful of Him, you would not run towards Him, you would run away from Him. Whereas what we find in ahadith is what? The more fear you have in your heart of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it pushes you to come closer to Him. This shows that this fear is different from the normal types of fear that we find around us. And therefore, many times people might ask this question, am I supposed to love God? Am I supposed to fear God? Well, the answer is simple. You're supposed to love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you are supposed to fear your sins. Because those sins, yes, they can get you into trouble. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself is not one that you are to be fearful of him the way you are fearful of evil individuals, of evil entities. It's not how it works. And if you find Ahlul Bayt say we are fearful of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is a fear that stops them from doing wrong things. Not a fear that they have done certain things and they're worried about the punishment and they're worried about the consequences. So what the Ahlul Bayt have in their heart is very different from what we understand. And unless we elevate and we come closer to that level, it's going to be difficult to really understand what, what type of understanding they have and the nearness they have towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Therefore, to wrap up this portion and move on, fearing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and at the same time doing th things out of His love, they go completely hand in hand. They, go com they are completely compatible with one another. Because when I do things out of love for someone, that means I have a deep understanding of who He is. And that's where the fear of the Ahlul Bayt comes from. Not that I've done something wrong and I'm fearful of the punishment or I'm fearful of the consequences. Okay, from there we're going to move on inshallah. And verse number 11 said this, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protected them from the evil of that day, from the punishment of that day. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will meet them with happiness and He will welcome them into the next world. And then he continues, وَجَزَاهُمْ بِمَا صَبَرُوا جَنَّةً وَحَرِيرًا This is verse number 12. And he is going to reward them for their patience, jannatan, a garden, وَحَرِيرًا And these types of clothing that are so soft, soft and silky, and the blessings of heaven, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to start now to explain these blessings. He's going to go into detail now. The point that we asked in our last session, the question that we posed in our last session before we ended was this. You would have expected Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to say, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rewards them because of the things that they have done with heaven. But the verse of the Quran says, وَجَزَاهُمْ بِمَا صَبَرُوا جَنَّةً وَحَرِيرًا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, we will reward them because of their patience. Jannah and Harir and the other blessings of heaven. So why is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala emphasizing this concept of patience? When you go to hadith, it opens us up a little bit more. And you understand at the end of the day, all of the forms of obedience that we have towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, one way or another, they boil down to a form of patience. They boil down to a form of, of me giving preference to what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants over what I want. 
And that's why multiple hadith mention that there are three different categories for sabra. There are three different categories for the patience that the human being has. There is the patience when he doesn't want to do something, but it's wajib and because of that he does it. There is the patience where he wants to do something, but because it's haram, he does not do it. He has to be patient there. He has to hold back his desires, which is a form of patience. And then there is the patience where he doesn't want something to happen to him. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has this happen to him. And he has to be patient with, all, with what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has chosen for him. Hadith says these are the three types of patience. And if you think about it, everything that we do when it comes to being obedient towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it falls under one of these three categories of patience. And therefore your obedience boils down at the end of the day to your patience. This is why hadith says that the patience of a believer compared to his faith is like the relationship that the head has to the body. If he has patience, then he is a living being because it's like his faith has a head. If he doesn't have that patience, this is a dead body because there's no head on it. Yes, you can have a living being without, for example, a limb, without a leg, without an arm, possible, right? But can you have it without a head? It's not something that you come across. The hadith says that patience, its relationship with faith, is like the relationship of the head and the body. You will never find the body being a living being without there being a head. This is what it all boils down to, patience. And this is just not, not just for the akhirah. Patience is not just something that will make you successful in the next world. It is something that will make you successful in this world as well. So much of your professional growth and so much of your personal growth in this world, it lies on this concept or relies on this concept of patience. And this is one of those characteristics that the human being has to start working on from the age of 10 and 12. When you start understanding these things, this is where you have to start building that patience inside of yourself. This is not something that you're supposed to wait until 20, 25, 30. That's too late. This is something that the human being has to start working on himself at a very, very young age. Patience, just building patience. Just learning to be patient. Learning that when frustration comes that he holds himself back. The more he builds patience inside of himself, the more personally he will be successful, the more professionally he will be successful. On a personal level, take a look at what patience does in the life of an individual. When this young man or young woman, when they develop patience at a young age, and then this person now gets married, and now he has a family, and now he has a, a wife or a husband or children, whatever the case may be, see how much patience affects this life of this individual. Every single day it affects the life of this individual. The key, the very, very key to success in a personal life is patience. And patience doesn't necessarily mean that if something, someone is doing something wrong that you just allow them to do it and you say, well, I'm just gonna be patient. No, it doesn't mean that. It means when your hands are tied and you don't have any other option that you're patient. It means that when you wanna say something but right now is not the time to say it, that you're patient enough to hold on to it. It means that when you have a duty towards your wife or your husband, and you don't want to do it, but you're patient, and you give preference to that duty over what you want, 
Patience is the key. And this is why I always say this. I always say that, you know, we have this common understanding, or I should say this common misunderstanding, that if I'm going to get married at the age of 20, 25, 30, whatever the case may be, that the preparation for my marriage, it starts with pre-marriage counseling, right? You know, before we get married, let's sit, sit with the counselor. Let's see what they tell us about our different, you know, personalities and our characteristics and what we might need to work on. That's good. It's wonderful. But that's actually pretty late. Preparation for a marriage doesn't start six months before the marriage. It doesn't start a year even before the marriage. Preparation for the marriage, building these characteristics inside of you, it starts from when you're 15 and 13 and 12. That's where it starts from. And you give this human being 10 years, 15 years to work on himself. And then over time, you see when he comes to the age of 20, 25, this person is very different from the one who was just living his life. And now all of a sudden he's come across the concept of marriage and now he wants to prepare himself. That's going to be very different. Preparation for marriage starts 10, 15 years before the marriage is actually going to happen. Not just with patience, all the, all the other characteristics that we have that a person needs to build inside of himself. This starts at a very young age. But if you're young and you're listening to this, what are some of those things you can work on at the very, very least? This one, some one thing that we can all work on from this very moment is getting along with my relatives and my family. Just getting along with my mother, with my father, with my siblings. This goes a far way. This goes a long way later on in the future. Learning to be able to get along with others. Doesn't mean you have to agree with everything they say. Doesn't mean you have to necessarily, you know, sacrifice your own rights for what other people say. No, that's not what we mean. You, you protect yourself, but at the same time, learning to get along, learning to look past minor issues. If someone can build this inside of themselves, and they have enough time to build it now because now they're starting at the age of 15, not at the age of 24, this person is going to be successful in his marriage and in the other interactions that he has. This is as it relates to the personal life of this individual. When it comes to the professional life of this individual, it's the same thing. Patience plays such a key role. If you're looking at a career and now you, you, you're telling yourself that you want to grow in this career, what's the first element that you need? Yes, you need hard work, but at the same time, you need patience. You need to be able to plan out things and take steps one by one and slowly come to your goal. If you don't have patience, you won't be able to do anything great in life, not in your personal life, nor in your professional life. Patience is really the key. And then add to that what we mentioned. Hadith says, all the obedience that you show to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a form of patience. That's why the Quran is emphasizing this issue. And it's not just this verse. Other verses of the Quran say as well, that yes, the, the, when the people of heaven, when they enter into heaven, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells them, Bismillah, why don't you enter? They welcome them into heaven. Why? Because of the patience that they showed. Because it all boils down to how patient you are. So this is why the Quran says, وَجَزَاهُمْ بِمَا sabaru." We're going to reward them for all the patience they showed. Because everything they did was in fact a form of patience. Recite a salawat, please. Allahumma salli ala Muhammadin wa ala Muhammad wa ajjil farajam. The verses continue. This is verse 13. Now when they enter into heaven, the Quran is now just starting to get into some of these details. Now an important question that we have to pose here 
is about the description that the Quran mentions of heaven. Because sometimes this description seems to be a description that fits more with the preferences of the people of the time of the Prophet, specifically with the Arab of the time of the Prophet, the Arabs of the time of the Prophet. So is the Quran describing heaven in a way that is more compatible with the preferences and the likes of the people of that time? And if so, what's the reason behind that? We're going to get to that question in just a second. But let's start to go through these details. Verse number 13 says this beautiful description that the Quran is mentioning of heaven. And I will say this, there are this description of heaven. You'll find it in other holy books in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. But the Quran goes into far more detail. The Qur'an describes in far more detail the pleasures of heaven. And many times, pleasures that you would refer to them as physical pleasures. Now, whether they're really physical or not is a discussion. But, you know, pleasures that will, you know, relate to the physical aspect of the human being. The things that, it, that the human being is going to eat, the things that the human being is going to drink, and so on and so forth. Take a look at how the Qur'an now is describing in detail, what heaven is going to look like. Number one, it says, These individuals, they are sitting on thrones. You know, when you sit on a chair, it's one thing. You sit on a chair, it's not showing how comfortable you are. When you sit on a throne, that's a different discussion. They used to have thrones back in the day where you would lie down on it. And that's why the Qur'an doesn't say, yajlisun or jalisun. The Qur'an says what? Muttaki'een. They are leaning on them. So the Qur'an is denoting how relaxed these individuals are. And that is really the key element in all of the description of heaven. The most important thing in heaven that takes place for the believer is that he has no worries. La khawfun alayhim wa yahzanun. He's not in any distress right now and he also doesn't have any worries for the future either. But now see how the Qur'an is manifesting it in the detailed description that it's giving of heaven. Number one, They are leaning back on these couches and these thrones that they have. Neither do they see the heat of the sun and nor do they have to deal with the cold of winter. The weather is just the perfect weather. In my words, it's partly cloudy, right? You know that, that, you know, that Sunday morning weather that you come across sometimes where the sun is out. There are some clouds out there, you know, but, you know, there's some, the sun is also out there. You know, it's in the 70s, you know, wonderful weather. The Qur'an says these individuals, they are so relaxed. At the same time, the weather is just wonderful. They don't have to deal with the heat. They also don't have to deal with the cold of winter. And then the Qur'an continues. And while they are relying or leaning on their couches, then there are shades upon them. And take a look at these next words, how the Qur'an goes into this beautiful description. And just imagine how relaxing this description of the Qur'an is. That these shades are upon them, and then it says this, And these branches have come down for those who are leaning on their couches. When this person wants to grab a fruit, he doesn't have to get up from where he is. 
The branches now come down to them. All of heaven is here to serve him. This is, this is a high status. Okay. So the shade is there. They're lying, you know, leaning back on their couches. And then the Quran continues. It's not just that. Then there are dishes and there are people around them. There are individuals who are serving them day and night. You've seen sometimes in movies where, for example, there's a king, a queen, they're having a meal. There are others who don't necessarily eat. Their only job is to serve this individual. Now, of course, in the movies, these individuals are treated badly. You know, they, they, they don't have any rights. That's not how it is in heaven. In heaven, these might be angels, for example. We don't know. Maybe they are angels that are serving this individual. But the Quran says, They're doing tawaf around them. What does that mean? Constantly, they're taking orders, bringing them things. They are circling them. And these dishes, they are made of silver. And then the Quran continues. And these glasses that are shining. And then take a look at these words of the Quran. These glasses or these dishes that they have, they are the ones who decide the size and the shape of these dishes and these glasses. They are the ones who decide what this dish should look like, what this glass should look like. Normally, we talk about heaven, the blessings of heaven coming from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And of course, they are from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we speak of the blessings of heaven being created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But if you pay attention to what the verse is saying now, this verse is saying they are the ones who create these dishes and manipulate how these dishes look and how these glasses look. These cups that they are drinking from, they decide what it looks like and how big or small they are. This is a point that the Qur'an is speaking of that is very, very critical. If you remember verse 5 and 6 of Surah Al-Insan that we are discussing also talked about this. They said that they drink from springs in heaven. تَفْجِيرًا They are the ones who bring about these springs. Not that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does this for them. Now they are doing it themselves. They have this power in heaven to do it themselves. And then you find in hadith here and there, we have traces of this. Of course, the biggest sign that this is possible is that the Qur'an is speaking of it. But then as, you know, as something to support the verses of the Qur'an, you also find this in our hadith as well. That this is the status that the human being can reach in heaven. That now he reaches a level where he can create things in heaven with the permission of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so you find in Ahadith Qudsi, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in one of the Ahadith Qudsi, He speaks to the human being and He tells the human being, Yabna Adam, I created you for this high of a status, for this lofty status. And this is mentioned in Ibn Fahd al-Hilli's book, Uddat al-Da'i. Of course, the Hadith, it doesn't come with the Isnad, but the verses of the Quran are already speaking of this concept. And so here's what the Hadith says. It says, Yabna Adam, this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Speaking to the human being, Yabna Adam, Ana Ghaniyun La Aftaqir. 
I am the wealthy one who never goes poor. Obey me in the things that I have commanded you to do. I will also make you wealthy like that. Very beautiful. Then the hadith continues. O son of Adam, I am the one who is everlasting and I never die. And then he says, Obey me in those things that I have asked you to do. I will also bring you up to this status where now you also are living. You will never die. There will be no death for you anymore. And then this third one, pay attention to what this third one says. Yabna Adam, ana kun fayakun. O son of Adam, I say two things that I want to create. Kun fayakun. I say, let it be, and therefore they are. Atli'ni fima amartuk. Obey me in those things that I have commanded you to do. I will also give you the power to say for something to be and it will exist. And as I mentioned, the hadith doesn't come with an isnad, but the verses of the Quran are telling us this. That at least some of the servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they have this power and this ability in heaven that they create these blessings on their own. That's what verse number 6 said. And then here what we're reading in these verses, verse 15 and 16, that the Quran says, They are the ones who measure the sizes, how to decide what these, these blessings are going to look like for them. They manipulate, they decide what their heaven is going to look like. This is the status that the human being is going to reach. This is the goal that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had in mind for us. And of course, for us, we're stuck here. We're stuck with the basics. And then this is why you find Ali ibn Abi Talib, he's calling us and he's saying, listen, leave this world behind. There's these great things waiting for you, but you're so stuck and I'm so stuck with the basic things in this world that we're not willing to let go of this stuff and go towards those statuses that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has in mind for us. That's why the hadith of Amirul Mu'mineen, we mentioned this yesterday. He says, Ala hurrun, is there any free man out there? Is there any free man to leave this world for those who want to run after this world? Lumada meaning the food that remains in the mouth of an individual, which is a food that, you know, it's disgusting. You don't, you don't really pay attention to it. And then he said this. He said, if you want to sell yourself to something, You want to sell yourself to something, you know what your worth is? Your worth is heaven. Your worth is, as the hadith says, I'm trying to take you to a place where you say to something, and then now you're stuck and you're still worried. Is why, is, why do I have to pray two rakats of fajr, five o'clock in the morning, when everybody else is asleep? I'm trying to make you ghaniyan la taftaqir. I'm trying to make you the wealthy who never goes poor again. And you're worried that, you know, why do I have to do wudu before I pray? Why do I have to fast 30 days? Can't this 30 days be 10 days? That's what we're stuck on. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Ali ibn Abi Talib, they are calling us and they're saying, listen, there's these greater things that we have in mind for you. 
And if, if the human being moves on from this world, then he can reach these high and lofty statuses that the Qur'an is speaking about. That there are these servants, they are circling them, and at the same time, qaddaruha taqdira. They themselves are the ones who decide what the blessings of heaven will look like for them. Then the Qur'an, of course, continues, and I'll move on with the verses. And they are given drinks, and these drinks have wonderful smells to them. Now, what is the smell? The Qur'an is using the word zanjabil. Okay, so what, what exactly is this referring to? Of course, in, in, some have said that the word zanjabil, some have said it refers to ginger, some have said no, it just means that something that is, it smells good. But what smell is this? What is it like? We don't know. The Qur'an doesn't tell us more than this. And it's probably because even if the Qur'an were to tell us more than this, we wouldn't really understand what it's like. And then the Qur'an continues, عَيْنًا فِيهَا تُسَمَّ سَلْسَبِيلًا They will be drinking from a spring in heaven. It is called سَلْسَبِيل. And سَلْسَبِيل, they say, it's a water that runs smoothly. As you can tell by how the word sounds itself, salsabil, it sounds like something that is running. Now, what is this salsabil? We don't know exactly again. We just know the Quran mentions these springs that are in heaven and that we give of these springs to the people of heaven. What happens when they drink of it? What does it taste like? We don't know. The Quran says it smells good, but we don't know exactly the details of this. And then the Quran continues to mention more and more descriptions of heaven. And he says in the next verses, You see those who are serving these servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the servants are so beautiful. The servants themselves look like pearls. The servants... They look like pearls. Forget about this person that they are serving. So if the servant looks this beautiful, lu'lu and manthura means, you know, you know, pearls that you you spread somewhere. You know, sometimes you've seen if you have a necklace and that necklace falls apart, right? If it if it you know it breaks, for example, and and these different the different pieces of crystal, for example, or pearls, they start to flow on the ground. This scene. The Qur'an says when you look upon the servants of those who serve these individuals, they look this beautiful. So then the question is, how beautiful does this believer look it's himself? How much does the believer take in pleasure from just his appearance? And you add to this that then this man or woman who used to live with me, my wife, my husband, my children... Now when they enter into heaven, if they're good individuals, they all enter together. And the Qur'an speaks about this. Al-haqna bihim. We have them join their children and we have them join their parents and azwajahum and their spouses. Now imagine the pleasure they take of being in the presence of one another. That's why we say, we say when someone comes and marries another individual... They marry each other, and in our culture we say, until death do us part. The Qur'an doesn't believe in this. Even after death, these two individuals will join one another. Even after death, they're going to be together. Even after they leave this world, they will be together, and they will take even more pleasure in the companionship of one another, 
in the acquaintance of one another. Because now the beauties of their soul is now manifesting itself. Because the beauties of the servants, they look like pearls. So you can imagine what the beauty of the believers themselves look like. Beautiful, the Quran says, telling the Prophet, Ya Rasulullah, if you look there and if you see what's happening there, this is just blessings and it's a big kingdom. As if the Quran is saying, listen, I can try to describe a little bit, but just know it's something that it's greater than what you've ever thought about. If you saw, Ya Rasulullah, what's going on over there, and this is more so for us, if you saw what's going on over there, you would be seeing things that is just so wonderful. I mean, we can try to describe a little bit for you, but you won't really understand. Your understanding is limited. Then moving on to verse 21. While they are in heaven, their clothing is made of green silk. And their clothing is made of brocade. Brocade meaning the type of clothing you would see sometimes in medieval times. They used to wear this type of clothing. Where there was, it was embedded with different shapes and different ornaments. And they are given jewelry of silver. And they are given a wine, but not the type of wine that gives you a headache and makes you say nonsense and makes you lose your modesty. Not that type of wine that we have in this world. They are given of the pure drinks of heaven. What are these pure drinks? Quran doesn't tell us more. As long as the Quran can touch on and stir up your imagination, that's the goal. Because in reality, we, you and I will never understand what these pleasures are really like. This was the reward for everything that they did. And every little bit of effort that you did, it is appreciated. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took it into account for you. Don't assume you did something, nobody saw it, doesn't count. No, it counts. He saw it, it counts. وَكَانَ سَعْيُكُمْ mashkura. All of your efforts were taken into consideration. And now the question that I posed this earlier in the session, and of course I will just pose this this week, inshallah we won't have time to go into it today, but I'll just mention it, inshallah next week we'll go into it. Why is it that the Qur'an speaks of these descriptions of heaven? Though they are beautiful descriptions. But one might ask, these are descriptions that would appeal to the Arab of the time of the Prophet, or even to the Arab of today maybe, or individuals living in a certain region more. If you're living in a region where things are hot, where the weather and the climate is a hot climate, well, having springs appeals more to you. If you're living in Alaska, having springs are not going to appeal to you, for example. Different types of fruit, for example, shade. These seem to be descriptions that the Qur'an mentions that seem to appeal more so to individuals living in the region where the Qur'an was revealed. Well, if that's the case, then how is this supposed to appeal to me? And why is it that the Qur'an describes 
heaven in this way? Isn't the Quran a book for everybody? Isn't the Quran a book for 1400 years and counting of individuals from different cultures and different backgrounds and different ethnicities? Why is the Quran emphasizing this type of a description? Because these description that we went through, some of the main elements of it are elements that are mentioned over and over in other verses of the Quran. It seems as though Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is more concerned about the heaven that a person living in the region of the Prophet would prefer than the heaven that someone living on in a colder climate, for example, would prefer. So what's going on here? Why does the Quran use this type of description and, and these, this taste when it is describing the, the blessings of heaven? This is inshallah a topic and a question that we will try to provide an answer to in our following session. Thank you, dear brothers and sisters, for tuning into another episode of the Tafsir Treasures podcast. I hope that this episode was another step for all of us to coming closer to having a deeper understanding of the Quran and the message of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you would like to stay updated on the courses, the presentations, or the other podcasts that Mizan Institute is offering, you can always follow us on the major social media platforms on Facebook, on Instagram, or Twitter. Or you can always refer to Mizan Institute's website, which is mizaninstitute.org. Finally, if there is any feedback, feel free to leave a review for the podcast, or you can always message us directly on any of these platforms so that we can benefit from your feedback for future projects, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.